Okay. Corinthians. Uh, disclaimer. <clears throat> Geography wasn't my strong suit, but it's important here to understand Corinthians. It was a, it was, um, a town in Greece. How many of you have been to Corinth, modern uh, ancient Corinth? Yeah, a handful of you. Oh, fantastic. Bring your snaps next week or post them on Facebook. And uh, It was a very, very strategically important city. Uh, what you need to know, you need to know some things about it. Here it is. Uh, just to orient you in case you're not uh, someone who's particularly good at geography. Um, here's, uh, here's Jerusalem. Here's Israel down here. You can all see that, right? And uh, the Apostle Paul... Um, was the guy who took the message of Jesus from Israel out to the rest of the world, the Roman Empire. And in a variety of, there there are at least three missionary journeys of Paul that we know about. And they kind of looked something like this, went to Cyprus, went around here, went around there, went back, went around and ended up in Rome. And there he died. There we go. Isn't that cool? You go to theological college for four years to be able to draw maps like that. Um, so he, faff, he, he, he waffled around um, uh, the Mediterranean, taking the gospel uh, up into Turkey, Ephesus, and all those sort of places, and then to, uh, to Athens, to Corinth, up to Rome, back to Jerusalem, and so on. Uh, Corinth was uh, originally a Greek city. The Romans, however, destroyed it. And it lay destroyed for a couple of hundred years. And then in, uh, in uh, 40, around 44 BC, Julius Caesar said, this is way too strategic a city to leave destroyed. So he recolonized the city. He started it again with uh, veterans from his legions. And the reason he did that was because like most empires, uh, your military relied on or fought for you or loyal to you because of your patronage, what you could give them. So what he gave his uh, retired soldiers was the city of Corinth. And they set up this city. So uh, it was reestablished in 44 BC. The apostle Paul, or Paul pops in around 50 AD. So it's a, it's a new city. It's a city that's been going less than 100 years in its current form. It's essentially Roman, not Greek, even though it's in the heart of Greece. So it's, and this is quite important when you look at some of the, the arguments in um, the letter itself. Paul writes, and this, this is very strategic, this city is very important. It's new, uh, it's, it's colonized by entrepreneurial war veterans and business people because it occupies a very strategic location for trade. Um, here we go, another example of my wonderful geography. This is the east and this is the west. And then as now, there was lots of trade between the east and the west. And so the trade routes from Turkey... Uh, through to Rome, which was the center of the empire, and the other way, had two options. They could either sail all the way around the Peloponnese here, which was actually a, a treacherous journey, or, watch this, they could, the ships, instead of sailing all the way around here and taking a long time and possibly getting shipwrecked, um, cargo could come across here and uh, could come into a port here, and uh, this little isthmus here, isthmus, was so narrow that you could unload big ships, carry the cargo across, load it on the ships on the other side, and off you'd go to the, to the east 
or do it in reverse. In fact, it was so narrow, they got, if, if, you was, if it was a light ship, they'd actually put the ship up on rollers and roll it across. And then, in fact, they, they dug a little channel so you could actually sail little ships all the way through. That channel still exists. So the Corinth became very wealthy because Corinth controlled this trade route east-west. And they made money out of all the trade. It was an area rich in natural resources. So people from all around the empire came to this growing, thriving, new, vibrant city that stood on this major trade route, east and west, and they supplied the traders uh, going backwards and forwards. But not only did it control the trade route east and west, it controlled the trade route uh, between north and south Greece. So you see it stood on that axis as well. So anyone going from the south to the north went through Corinth, very wealthy. It was a new city. It meant so that meant social mobility was possible. It attracted people to it who wanted to get rich. Because you could. Because there were no old statuses and hierarchies, because kind of everyone was a migrant. Everyone had arrived within the last hundred years from somewhere else. So you could come, you could make your fortune, you could also lose your fortune. And that happened as well. It was a cosmopolitan, multi ethnic trading hub. Uh, and a center of commerce. It was also um, a city uh, that was built around tourism because every two years, there were three major games in the Greek world, and every two years there was what were called the Isthmian Games, which was one of the three major games or festivals in uh, the Greek world. And so every two years, people from all around the Roman Empire came to Corinth for the games. There were some uh, phenomenal innovations in the games. These are the first games where female athletes were allowed to participate, for example. Okay, so uh, Paul would have arrived into a, into a modern, grasping, competitive, business-oriented, tourist-dominated city um, uh, that was made up of people who, who came there to get rich and, uh, and who uh, were competing with each other all the time for uh, access to all this money that was flowing into the city. It was also a city where appearances mattered an enormous amount and approval mattered. And we see this in the debate around rhetoric. So you may, little history lesson. Um, There were two schools of rhetoric in the Greco-Roman world at the time. The one drew its uh, roots back from Aristotle's day. And uh, classic rhetoric said what mattered was the truth of your argument as well, the substance as well as the form, the truth of the argument as well as how persuasive you could be in arguing for your argument. But what had developed and what flourished in Corinth was what was the, the um, a second era of sophist argument or rhetoric. And the sophists believed the truth didn't really matter. What mattered was winning at all costs, was impressing people, was impression management, was persuasion. And so many people made a lot of money in Corinth by being these incredibly impressive sophist arguers. Um, and they, it didn't matter what they argued. They were so clever, they could get you convinced. And they were the rock stars of Corinth, where, where sophistry, from which we get that name, argumentation, rhetoric was used as a form of entertainment, of power, uh, all in the interest of making money. Uh, now, just think about Sydney. You see any parallels? <laughs> We're a young city. Everybody here is from somewhere else. Once we 
largely got rid of the original inhabitants, um, you know, colonized it, uh, come here to get rich. We're a major bustling trading port, center of business. We're a city that is uh, oriented around success. We're here to make money. Everyone's here to get a harbor view. We're a city that is uh, into relentless self-promotion, aren't we? I mean, that's what, we're, we're sophists. Everybody's always telling everyone else how great they are and where you live and how much you're worth and all that kind of good stuff, right? And, uh, and we're a competitive city, very competitive. Uh, you know, this old idea of Australian egalitarianism is, an, is a myth, Right? Not true at all. So you speak to so we we've had you speak to people who, for example, studied overseas, and you come back to study in an Australian university, and you discover how intensely competitive Australian uni students are with each other, like right from the get-go. It's part of this crazy ATAR system we have in the HSC, where there's no raw ranking. Everyone's ranked at school against everybody else. You're competing against everybody else. I mean, there's only so much water frontage in Sydney to go around. And if you don't get it, someone else will. There might be Chinese, and that would be terrible. But, you know, if you can elbow each other out, there might still be a space for you, uh, you know, particularly if your folks have got a pile of money and they can help you out. But you're competing against everyone all the time. People who come into Sydney and study at our universities will say, compared to studying at a European university, there is very little cooperation within, amongst the students. There's just intense competition. We see this in our high schools. If, you're, if you have the joy of having a kid who's at the, at the pointy end of high school and having to choose between HSC and the IB, we're going through that wonderful experience right now. What's fascinating is the schools themselves will say that, that within the HSC, there is no cooperation. It's all competition. The IB culture, the cohorts of the kids who do the IB cooperate with each other and, and work collaboratively. It's a European-based system, and there's no comp- you're, not, you're not ranked on, an, on a bell curve. You're just, it's your raw score, and that's it. And now, so you say we're a competitive city, we're 30 million tourists come here, everyone's trying to get a a bit of that money, and uh, we're new, we're brash, we're into relentless self-promotion, we're the best city in the world, aren't we? Uh, There's a sort of Sydney exceptionalism that was the same of Corinth, sophisticated city, not like the country bumpkins, I mean, you know, we're not like Melbourne, living in the past, stuck up all in black, you know, sort of depressed and miserable, but pretending we're better than anyone else. We're certainly not like people who live in the country, you know, can't tell their left hand from their right hand, and you know, all that sort of stuff, marry their cousins, you know, we're sophisticated, urban center. Uh, That's how Corinth thought and talked, right? And and so we're better than other people. We're different to other people. We're special. We're unique. You're di- we're different. We don't really need anyone else. Uh, you, know, the, you know, really, Australia, Sid- Sydney would be great without the rest of Australia, just the Great Barrier Reef and a couple of tourist destinations, and, you know, we'd be just fine. So what's all that got to do with the church? Well, in Corinth, what, what effect this meant was the church, because it grew and lived and was born in this culture, actually these values and attitudes permeated and influenced the church. Then and now. It just does. So there was a certain exceptionalism to the Corinthian church. Well, we're better than other people. We don't need anyone else. We're, we're, we're Corinthians after all. We've got it all. We know it all. 
never hear anything like that in Sydney churches. <laughs> Who needs the rest of the world? Who needs the rest of the church? We've got it all. You know, we've got the best theology in the world if we're Sydney Anglicans. We've got the best music in the world if we're Hillsong. Uh, you know, I don't know what else. Those are the only two churches here, aren't they? I don't know. We've got the best water tanks if we're Sydney Baptists. I don't know, whatever it is. Um, there's a certain Sydney exceptionalism. You know, we don't need the rest of the world. We've got it all together, right? We don't need the rest of the church. There's a competitiveness that, that, that seeped into the church in Corinth. If your whole world is about getting ahead and trading and doing business, you start to see other people in the body of Christ like that. And so factions formed and divisions and allegiances and alliances. You're always looking at, at what's in it for you. The whole world is a marketplace and you're always selling and you're always selling and you're always promoting yourself. And so, of course, if that's how you live, and that's how you've always lived, and that's how you get ahead, when you come into church, suddenly it's very hard to stop seeing the world like that. Actually, I can't start, okay, I've got to, I've got to stop self-promoting. I've got to stop seeing everyone as a potential to make a deal to get ahead here. And uh, so Paul had heard about these problems that had started to emerge in the church. He'd heard from Chloe's people. And uh, they'd written to him and said, you know, he'd heard these reports. Man, there's some real problems. Paul had been there for about 18 months to start the church. And this letter was written maybe three or four years later. Paul's based, we think, in Ephesus by this time, AD 54, 53, 54. He's writing this letter. And he's addressing these concerns that have emerged. But then also, it seems like the Corinthians had written to him. And they'd also got themselves confused about a few things. And they wanted some advice. So that's a good thing. Um, there was at least one letter written before this letter. So this is probably two Corinthians. And there may have been other letters as well that have been lost. We don't know. We only have one and two in our Bibles. There was a pre-existing letter as well we don't have. And the Corinthians wanted advice on things like money, sex, and power, going to law, the resurrection. And we're going to cover off all of those. Uh, and it's going, to be, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'll tell you the, one, the sermons we're going to do on sex. They'll be, you know, might have parental guidance. You know, we'll set an age limit on those. And... Um, because it's, it's, it's very, very practical, very applicable today. Uh, that's the context. How does Paul address all of these issues? What's the answer to all the challenges? This, this complex church in a complex city facing masses of challenges. What's the answer? What's the, the unifying theme of all of 1 Corinthians going to be? How is he going to help them? What's the answer? Just think about Sunday school. Christ. The answer is Jesus. And, and it sounds trite and simple, and at one level it really is, but it's, and it's so hard to do. What 1 Corinthians does and what Paul does for the Corinthians and what God is going to do for us is he's, he shows how all the major sociological and theological and psychological and economic and sexual and political tensions and struggles and economic struggles of life in Corinth and life in the church were to be understood and reframed and addressed and healed in the light of Jesus. Everything is to be seen in the light of the light of the world. 
That's not easy to do. It's very hard. That's what Paul does in 1 Corinthians. And that's why it's such a powerful book, even for us today. Because as we study it, what God is going to do is show us how to see all of our lives in the light of Jesus Christ, in particular, his cross and resurrection. It's a bit like C.S. Lewis. He says, I believe in God as I believe in the Son not because I see it directly, but because by its light I see everything else. 1 Corinthians will teach us to see everything else in the light of the cross of Jesus Christ. Okay? Uh, In this section, the part we read, we're going to see how he starts to develop this argument. We're going to see how he uh, addresses the questions of identity, of salvation, and of unity in the light of Jesus. And, uh, and it just gets deeper and deeper and deeper as we go. Uh, but this is how it starts, how Paul starts. And, and one of the reasons we won't... Well, maybe we'll do it. You'll see how central it is because in these first nine, in the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions uh, the name Jesus Christ ten times. <coughs> Uh, It's all about Jesus. So let's have a look firstly at the question of identity. Okay? A question of identity. So Paul's writing to these people, and um, how does he he identify himself? Does he start off by going, well, I, Paul, Rhodes Scholar, genius, (laughs) you know, church planter par extraordinaire, I mean, he could have said, I'm the guy, like when I say Rhodes Scholar, he, he was the, the, the Jewish equivalent. He studied under Gamaliel. He was one of the leading rabbis of the day. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and, and he was a Roman citizen. So he was at the top of the tree in the Jewish world. He was a Roman citizen, born a Roman citizen in the top of the tree in the Roman world. He was educated. He was sophisticated. He was a man of the world. He was influential and powerful intellectually. He could have said all of that. His opening address could have looked like your LinkedIn profile. Exercise in relentless self-promotion, which we all indulge in, or any website. Just look at our website to see how we promote ourselves. By we, I mean me. Um, He doesn't do that, does he? I mean, what are the things that we typically in Sydney, build our identity on, or your sense of you-ness, what makes you, you? In Sydney, what do we rely on typically? Address. Address, work, yeah. Isn't it interesting? In Sydney, man, your address, where do you live? Well, Balmain. I live in Roselle. Well, which side of Victoria Road, you know? Oh, the West Side, oh, really, you know. I mean, it's just a cipher for your identity and your worth, your net worth, blah, blah, blah. Okay, what else? What do you do, where you work, yeah, where you live? That's awesome. Where you holiday, Uh, yep. Who you know, oh, man. Yep, it's called associational status. Who you're married to, yeah. Uh, who you know, who you married. 
Ah, branding, label, label and brands. Yep. In, in Sydney, that's more a Melbourne thing, you know. So, I don't know. Maybe Sydney as well. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Um, what else? What kind of car you drive? Saw some down the back there. Yellow, yeah? Oh, oh. No, we never, ever rely on... See, I mean, even just my discussion about HSC and IB referred, that's a subtle proclamation that our kids are in a private school, right? Like, it's pathetic. Um, schooling. Kids. Actually, school for the kids, our success of our kids, you know, well, we're, my kids, you just, we just drop it in, you know, we're in the uh, gifted and talented program, you know. Hey, well, yeah, my kid's doing arts, commerce, law, science, aeronautical engineering, all in one at Sydney Uni as a precursor to going to Harvard. Um, you know, <laughs> my grandkid's three and reads at the age of a 10-year-old. What else? Age. We live in a culture that builds our identity on age. This is why the baby booms. You guys are all struggling so much, man, because you're getting old. You're about to die, you know. But we're all just temporarily young. It's a craziness, right? I mean, we're just temporarily young. It'll happen to all the young people. They'll get old and wrinkly and saggy, and they'll cock it as well. It's all good. So... Uh, here's what 1 Corinthians, here's what Paul says. Like, instead of you building your identity on these things, and particularly in the church, right? If we can, we can become followers of Jesus, we can join the church, but still functionally rely on these things to give ourselves this sense of identity. And, and actually, that's pretty exhausting, isn't it? Uh, I mean, our sense of identity, if you drop a generation, is built on how many people follow you on social media. You know how you, you rank... I mean, you talk about YouTubers, it's how many followers you have, how many people watch your videos. It's a whole new way of valuing people, how many likes you get on your Instagram posts, uh, you know. So um, that's exhausting and crushing. And when you start treating people like that in the church, it starts to actually undermine the very essence of church. Paul says, no, look at what our identity is. He's, who is Paul? Well, he's someone who's called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. It's an identity that is given to him by God. It's not something he's had to construct or manufacture or keep up with. So that's who I am. No, he's actually, as an apostle, he's the, he's the messenger. He's the one who announces the good news of Jesus Christ. And um, he's actually called to suffer. And then what he says, look, it's not just Paul who has this identity given to him in Christ. He says, to the church of God, so here, Darling Street, 10.30 a.m., where's our identity? Is it because we're white, Anglo, blah, 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 any of these things? No, no, he says, the church of God to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified means to be set apart as belonging to God as his instruments, um, you know, you set apart, you sanctify surgical instruments to be used in the operating theater for a specific purpose and task, not just used in the kitchen to chop up the Sunday roast, right? And he says, like, so you and I were like God's special instruments set apart from everyday use to be used for his plan and purpose. And we're called to be his holy people belonging to him. 
And we're together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus, Christ, their Lord and ours. So our identity comes from our relationship to Jesus. If you call on his name, that is if you trust him, then that defines you. That tells you who you are more deeply and powerfully and profoundly than your address or your schooling or any of those other things we've listed. And that's the basis for our corporate identity, which makes the church two things, incredibly inclusive. You know, undercutting the Corinthian exceptionalism. You don't get to be part of the church by being wealthy or successful or climbing any sort of social tree. You just call on the name of Jesus and show up and you're in. Doesn't matter on your sexual propensities or proclivities on your economic status, on your ethnicity or your culture or even your religious background. If you want to call on the name of the Lord Jesus, you just join. And we're part of a global church, which he's making this point to the Corinthians. You're not just your own, tucked away in Corinth. We're the special Corinthians. We can do what we like. He says, no, you're together with all those everywhere. So as we go through this series, our ident- we need to realize, friends, here at, at Roselle, our identity is far more than just us here in Roselle. We're part of a global body with our Pentecostal brothers and sisters who meet in warehouses and stadium around the world, with our developing world brothers and sisters who meet in you know, slums and tin shacks and under trees, with our Chinese brothers and sisters who cram into apartments um, in underground house churches, with our Middle Eastern brothers and sisters who are driven out of their homes and try to worship in refugee camps, with our Coptic and Orthodox brothers and sisters in Central Europe and Russia, with our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters. We're part of a church. Anyone who calls on the name of Jesus, they're our brothers and sisters. It's amazing, hey? It's not about us. And, and I think we, we find our identity as part of this calling of God on us and it gives us a great big picture of who God is and what he wants for us to do. To join his story, his global people, to bring blessing and renewal to the world. Not just us little here in Roselle. Uh, we're part of, and, and this wonderful, so it's, it's inclusive. It's also tremendously freeing. I mean, there's real freedom in this, right? All the grasping and the working and the promoting and the struggling and the feeling of inadequacies and maybe the feelings of never being quite good enough and having the world pass you by and all those things, you know, you leave them at the door when you come to know Jesus. He says, no, no, I love you, man. I've, my relationship with you is what gives you life. My relationship with you is everything, Jesus says. Isn't that amazing? So that's the first thing uh, Corinthians will address, uh, our identity, and it gives us grace and peace. Uh, the second thing it's going to address in great detail, and we don't have time to go into it, is our salvation. And our salvation is all about Jesus, funnily enough, and it's all about his grace. It's the first thing we see. Paul is going to be at pains, and we're going to be at pains to say, you know what? Our relationship with God is not, in the first instance, about what we do or achieve or how good we are. It's about what he gives to us. And this is what Paul says. For in him, you've been enriched in every way. So in our, our self-experience of God 
is all of grace, all kinds of speech and knowledge. Um, You do not lack any spiritual gift. Everything we have is a gift from God. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. It's not given to us because of who or what we are. It's It's a gift. Receive it as a gift. Embrace it as a gift. It's all given to us through Jesus Christ. Now, this is going to be important later in Corinthians because... Um, we have a tremendous, the Corinthians and Sydney siders, and you and I have this tremendous ability to take a gift of God that's a good gift and then turn it into the basis of our identity and then use it to feel proud about ourselves and to oppress and marginalize others. We do that all the time. In the Corinthian case, gifts of knowledge and wisdom, it's a gift from God. And they turn it into a base of identity and oppress others. You're not as wise as me. You're not as eloquent as me. You're not as powerful as me. It's terrible. We do that all the time. We're gifted with money here. We're a rich congregation. We can very subtly, very easily think that, turn that into, you know, sense of entitlement, build our sense of identity on that, and then, you know, be more beholden to our wealth than we are to Jesus and use that to subtly exclude others from our church. It happens all the time, seeps in. And Paul says, no, our salvation, everything is grace. Everything is from God. Um, uh, and then it's, it's, all, it's all about the timing. This is um, the next thing. We're going we're to see this as a bit of a theme throughout the letter. But in 1 Corinthians, it's really important to know uh, where we live in this world. And where we live is uh, we are eagerly waiting for Jesus Christ to be revealed. Now, what does that mean? Well, here's, here's the history of the world. I might have to do it on another page because I'm running out of space here. It's going to be, it's, it's doing the whole history of the world in one diagram. It's, it's pretty impressive. But then, you know, that's just me. Um, here we go. Impressive artist. Here we go. Adam, Eve, here's the creation of the world. Starts here. Okay, all good. Here's Adam. Here's Eve. They're all happy. Here's God. Woohoo, all good. Then they kind of mess up. Okay, that's called the fall. I don't know, call it that. And we we muddle along here. Here comes Israel. God's trying to save the world, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't really work. Um, It's all just going to hell in a handbasket. Like it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And then what happens? Well, hey, along comes Jesus. And that's all awesome. And what happens to Jesus? Well, it all looks good for a bit. And then he goes and dies. And that seems terrible and awful. But uh, we know after. But we know that Jesus kind of rises again from the dead. Whoop. Forget the spatial metaphors. I know we don't live in a three-tiered universe, but it sort of makes sense, right, spatially. So Jesus ascends, and he's he's hanging up here with God. And uh, when Jesus goes up to be with God, does he leave us by by ourselves? Well, no. What does he do? Did you all get that? Okay. He sends his spirit down to be with us. Whoop. And now we're all living here. And, um, and the Holy Spirit comes. I can't draw a dove. Um, I just call it the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit comes and is now with us to bring the presence of Jesus to us because Jesus is now seated with the Father. And, and we're living here. And, and this is where the Corinthians were. And uh, they're all going about their business. But some of the Corinthians, they thought, man, you know what? Actually, um, this is as good as it gets. This is like the end has come. The, the, the full fullness of Jesus is here and the Holy Spirit's here. And this is like, woohoo, this is the end times. Yay, it's all good. This is like heaven on earth. 
And Paul says, no, 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 it's not. You haven't got it all yet, guys. You haven't got it all yet. There's more to come. Which actually, if you ask me, is a really good thing because if this is as good as it gets, I think Christianity sucks, right? Like there's something seriously missing. And there is. There is because Paul is going to say, you're going to wait for the revealing of Christ. So here, so this was Corinth back here and, you know, you fast forward 2,000 years and here's us. And we're still, we're still full of the Holy Spirit. We're trusting Jesus. But we're all looking forward to at some point, at some point, Jesus is going to return. And I don't know how to re- do the return of Jesus here, but let's just make it like a big crown. Okay? And, and he's going to be revealed as king, and the world's going to be made new, and then we're all going to live forever in a great new healed world. And, and that's coming. So we have the now. So we live in the now. We actually, we, we, we experience Jesus and the power of the Spirit now. But there's a whole bunch of not yet. There's a whole bunch of not yet, man. The not yet of full healing. The not yet of love triumphing over hatred. The not yet of all our tears being wiped away. The not yet of disease being conquered. The not yet of justice being undone. That's all coming. And Paul says, uh, you're, you're going to wait Jesus Christ to be revealed. So, hey, Corinthians, hey, Darling Street people, realize we live here, man. We live in this now and the not yet. And guess what? The other good news is you can trust. Who's going to keep you? Who's going to keep you faithful to the end? Well, the same Jesus who got you there is going to keep you to the end. So your salvation, your, your courage and your perseverance in the now and the not yet as we walk in the valley of the shadow of death, waiting for the revelation of Jesus. That's going to be done. That Jesus is going to be the one who's going to keep you there and keep me there. Okay, that's the history of the world. Uh, that's, the th- that's the second thing. And then the third, the final thing that uh, Paul wants to solve and point us to uh, as Jesus is the solution is our church unity. Uh, our church unity. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of Jesus Christ, um, that all of, and this is really, the, the commentators will say um, that uh, this is, in many ways, the theme of the book, that in Christ we agree with one another in what you say, and there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. And we're going to have a lot more to say about this. But God's plan is in Jesus Christ, we're, we're a family, we're united. And the metaphor he's going to use for the church is uh, the body of Christ. And he says this, he says, listen, I've heard some of you come along and say, because actually this is what happened. These are, we don't think, I don't think as I read the literature, these are formal factions. It's just how sort of divisions develop and pat, around patronage and power and influence and preference. And, and he says, some people say, I follow Paul. Others say, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Kephas. And still another, I follow Christ. Divisions come into the church and he kind of climaxes with the, I follow Christ. You would have thought he would have said, that's a good thing. But the great tragedy is in our human sinfulness, we can even make Jesus belong to our little faction. Well, I'm a real Jesus follower. You're not. You're a Baptist. You don't really know Jesus like me. You're a Roman Catholic. How can you possibly know Christ? You're a Pentecostal. You don't know Jesus. You just want money. 
I mean, don't you hear that? That's tragic. I've got, I've got the real understanding of Jesus. You don't. So we make Jesus, we co-opt Jesus to, to be, belong to our little faction. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Listen, is Christ divided? And actually, look, the word he uses here is the word in the story when Jesus sent the guys out to go fishing and told them where to fish. And they pulled the nets up and the nets ripped. It's the same Greek word. Can you rip apart the body of Jesus Christ by your selfish divisions? The other image I have, which is a little more gross, is what happened in the middle in medieval times when you'd, you'd hang, draw and quarter someone. You'd hang them and then to make sure they were really dead, you'd tie each of their limbs to a, a horse and then you'd whip the horse and the horses would go in all four directions and pull the body apart. That's the imagery, that's the violence that Paul is talking about being applied to the body of Christ when our cultural uh, forces combine with our own intrinsic selfishness and sinfulness and short-sightedness mean we rip apart the body of Jesus over power, over patronage, over preference. You know, it's easy to do, isn't it? Oh, I don't like the music. Oh, I don't like the new minister. Oh, you know, they just always on about money. Oh, they've got the slightly wrong understanding of the sacraments or whatever it is. You know, we go on and on and on and on and on. And we tear apart the body of Jesus because we don't realize that in Christ, that's our unity. Don't tear it apart. I mean, I think the big challenge, I, I think... The big challenge for the Corinthians and for us is to say our, our greatest growth comes when we unite on Christ and, and do the hard work of staying connected across all our other potential differences. Because what we have in Christ is far more important than, than what separates us. <laughs> you know, isn't that cool? What matters is Jesus and that we're serving him and that we're loving him. You're going to love him and serve him differently to me, but that's okay. You know, the prezies across the road are trying to, you know, Chapel Hill, they're going to love and serve Jesus a little bit differently to us, you know. We're boring and uptight and Presbyterian. Actually, they're lovely guys. They're going to be different to us. C3 Roselle's going to be different to us. The Catholics down in Balmain, they're going to be different to us. Even within this church, we're going to be different at 9 o'clock here and at 6 o'clock. And, and, I mean, gosh, within our own families, we'll have different preferences and styles, slightly different understandings of Jesus. That's okay as long as we're all following him and submitting to him and saying, together, that's what unites us. That's our source of authority and of unity. It's not an easy, it wasn't an easy message here. You see, there were probably a, a range of house churches, maybe 30 to 50 people who could meet together with a couple of these planted in the city. It wasn't an easy message then, and it's not an easy message now. Sticking together, being deeply united in Christ is, uh, is not easy. <laughs> in fact, it's funny, uh, the one thing I got taught I did this master's degree in organization dynamics years ago, which was fantastic. Spent all this money on this graduate program. And the one little comment that just stuck with me and has changed my life, uh, one of the lecturers at one point said, conflict always occurs at the boundary of a shared task. 
Okay, let me rephrase that. Conflict always occurs at the boundary of a shared task. So in any organizational system or in life, whenever you try to do something with someone else, you're always going to get conflict, right? Always. So just accept it and then figure out how to deal with it. And that's in church, there's always going to be conflict because we're always trying to work together on the shared task of loving Jesus and changing the world for Jesus. So just expect it. Just, but then the key is let's deal with it in the Christ-like way that pushes us deeper into Jesus. It's the same in marriage, same in school, but in the church, in the church, when we let our personal sin, our preferences, our selfishness, when we build our identity on things other than Jesus and that starts to erode our community, when we let those things divide the church, we rip apart the body of Christ. We eviscerate his body of its powerful witness because the rest of the world looks at us and says, well, if they can't get along with each other, if they can't be reconciled with each other, if they tear each other apart, if they're full of hypocrites and they can't bring peace and reconciliation amongst themselves, what possible validity does their message of peace and reconciliation have? So we've got to be united in Christ. And that's not easy. But that, dear friends, is why Jesus died, to cover over our sins, to pour out his Holy Spirit so that with him, one step at a time, we can get there. And that's a wonderful thing. So I'm going to finish there.